Hi, everybody, and welcome to part seven of the Metric Minute brought to you by Vault Performance. I'm Kareem Durkawi, and today we will jump over the flight phase, no pun intended, on our way to examining peak landing force. Now, this metric is exactly what the name describes. It's the highest force value produced when landing after a jump. A safe, typical landing technique begins with initial toe or forefoot contact, then progresses towards heel contact. This requires rapid eccentric loading of the Achilles calf complex and enables afferent reflex mechanisms to begin a coordinated response. The knees and hips then experience strong torques to decelerate body mass moving at speed. Afterwards, the force trace returns back to body weight levels. Now, here are two examples of different landing strategies. The first is an athlete with certain attributes. Notice the weight and vertical jump height. You see that he lands with almost nine times body weight. A quick examination of the eccentric phase shows weak loading ability. Combining weak eccentric performance with a huge peak landing force like this one suggests this athlete may not be able to decelerate hard and fast. Rather, he prepares slowly for the jump and lands very stiffly. However, this athlete is taller and heavier with nearly the same vertical jump height. Notice how his eccentric phase is exceptionally potent, plus his peak landing force is only about three times body weight. This suggests he can load effectively and land softly with control, thus reducing injury risk. The take-home message is that landing forces rely greatly on loading ability. Comparing results with eccentric phase performance might reveal patterns that can be improved. Now, next time, we will zoom out and examine how everything starts to come together. Until then, please feel free to touch base with me or any of us at Vault Performance. Thank you. The world of strength and conditioning is filled with some awesome practitioners who are always trying to evolve and continue to grow professionally throughout their career. The problem with many of us, though, is finding a new outlet, a new way and a new perspective on the questions that we may have whether it be programming, whether it be situational with dealing with coaches, or whether it be career advice. Because all too often what happens is we get stuck in with the same group of friends and the same group of colleagues that we reach out to for advice repeatedly over and over again. But what we should really be looking for is different perspectives, different people who have been through different situations who can help us make better decisions both for ourselves and our athletes. And one awesome place to start with that is the forums in the Strength Coach Network. In the forums in the Strength Coach Network, you'll be able to reach out and get feedback, input, and advice from coaches from all over the world, from everything from career advice to training modalities to programming. There's people there just for the same reason as you are, to try to get better, to learn, to share information, and to grow the field of strength and conditioning. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash cvasps. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash cvasps to dive into all that great content today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Jay DeMeo coming at you with this week's edition of My Thoughts Monday. And today, I'd like to uh, kind of clear up some fake confusion that we're seeing uh, on the internet, on the Twitter sphere, when it comes to some training methods and principles that have been long-standing in the world of physical preparation and athletic development, but have gotten kind of a, an unfair, bad reputation of late. You know, I, I think that before we get too far into that, though, there's something that needs to be discussed. And that first thing that needs to be discussed is, overall, as a, as a vocation, you know, strength coaches, physical preparation specialists, whatever we want to call ourselves, have always claimed that we are people that are 
constantly in pursuit of growth. We are constantly looking to develop and evolve and learn more, right? Because isn't the cliche statement, you know, the, the minute you stop getting better as a coach, the only person that gets punished is the athlete that you get to work with. So we look at these things and we're like, man, we got to stay up to date. We got to find the, the newest and latest and greatest methods, means, pieces of equipment, technology, all this stuff. And we got to be one step ahead. But really what we end up doing is we really end up lumping a lot of things together. We end up making things into blanket statements and throwing the baby out with the bathwater a lot instead of what we should be doing. And that is collecting as many means, methods, principles, options, whatever you want to call it as possible so that we can take a step back and look at the athletes that we get to work with and provide them with the precise form of stress or the precise type of stimulus that will help them the most. You know, and I think the one thing that really gets the worst, worst reputation and has gotten it the worst out of all the times when it comes to these type of situations is what we like to call long, slow and uh, distance training or just like, you know, steady state cardio, whatever you want to call it. You know, and, and strength coaches for forever, right, have loved that picture where it compares the sprinter who looks as though he's just carved out of stone and is just like an Adonis versus the cross-country runner who looks, you know, a bit frail. And they love to say, well, you know, this is why we don't do distance running, because if you do distance running, this is what you're going to look like. Yeah, if you train like a marathoner, you're probably not going to look like Batista, right? Like, let's be honest. But you have to train like a marathoner. You have to be running miles upon miles upon miles every day. What we fail to look at is that there are massive positive adaptations that come from low-end cardiac work that come from low-end endurance work. For example, if you have an athlete that for some way, shape, or form, you can measure heart rate, and their resting heart rate is above 60, don't you think that maybe it would be better to do some low-end cardiac work to bring their resting heart rate down? If you have athletes that don't recover well between bouts, and you don't want to provide an exceptionally stressful stimulus, wouldn't something of a low-end cardiac output work provide the ability for that? Wouldn't that increase that ability for them to be able to adapt quicker between bouts and within bouts? If the athlete is exceptionally sympathetic, have a very low HRV, wouldn't we want to do that type of training to help increase that so they can recover? so that they don't stay in this fight or flight, so that they can breathe better, they can do all these other things better. But instead of looking at that, we say, long, slow distance training will never work. I'll never do it. It doesn't make you better at sports. We're saying that off our right shoulder, right? 
with the good angel. Meanwhile, the devil on the other shoulder says, well, but we're always going to go after the low-hanging fruit. We're always going to do what's best for the athlete. And we're always going to do what's going to provide the greatest adaptation with the least amount of cost. Well, how much less of a cost can there be going on a 30-minute walk with your heart rate between 120 and 130? How much less of a cost can there be? And if you've got someone whose heart rate is too high, so they don't adapt well, or their HRV is too low, so they can't handle the stress, and they can't adapt and they can't recover between bouts, which we also say is most important, is to be able to do things repeatedly, well then why would we throw that away? Why are we sitting here and taking specific means and making them villains when in reality, it could be that simple means that allows the adaptation that's most important. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe the answer is, is that it's boring. It's boring. We don't need to be there for that. Hey, go sit on a bike, spin it at about 120 beats per minute for 30 minutes. Go have fun. You don't need to sit there for that. You're not needed for that. Is that why? because we can't sit there and oversee what they're doing, or if we are there with them, we're just staring at them on a treadmill or a bike or walking around someplace, is that why? That's a lousy reason. But that's also the same reason people say that one by 20 is stupid, right? Because they get bored. Because it's like, oh, you do the same workout three days a week? Sure do. Don't you get bored? No, I don't get bored. I don't get bored because I'm able to see the bigger picture. And I think that right now, we need more people to be able to see the bigger picture. We need to take a step back and start reevaluating why we are just so, so excited to go and be educated. And we like to talk about all the books we read and all the webinars we see and all the publications we get into. But then when there's something that for one form or another just doesn't fit some sort of agenda that we have. We throw the baby out with the bathwater instead of actually sitting there and being like, in this one situation, that may be helpful. Now, I'm not sitting here and saying that everything is going to be okay all the time, every time, anytime. And I'm not saying that everything that we do needs to be, you know, stored somewhere in your brain and kept around because there are some things that, you know, may just not fit with what you do. But if we're going to say, and we're going to mean that we are trying to provide the minimal effective dose and we are trying to pick the low hanging fruit off the tree first, then what we can't do is take the simplest, easiest, least stressful forms of activity and say, we will never do that. Blanket statements have no place in what we do. And people like to make them too often. And it's just too bad. Because the simplicity of some of these training means can build such a great adaptation that can lead you to do such greater, more intense, more fun training modalities later on.
I'm sure not everybody agrees with me. I'm sure there's some people that say, yeah, we would never do long distance aerobic work. It's fine. There's also people that say they would never sprint because it's too risky, right? You could pop a hammy. There's people that say they would never lift heavy because what's the risk? You know, why risk it with athletes? There's people that would say they would never lift at high volume because why risk it? There's people that say they would never back squat or front squat or rear front elevated split squat. The more you say you would never do something, the more you hamstring yourself, put yourself in a corner and eliminate your ability to be the best coach possible for your athletes. So yo, take a deep breath. A lot of things can help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So let's stop posturing and saying things are good or things are bad and start saying, this may not be appropriate at this situation for this athlete, but it may be appropriate for another one later. But that's just my two cents. I think we can all be a little better with that. And I think that when people like to make those statements, you know, more often than not, it's probably just for attention. It's another rant for another day though. As always, truly appreciate everything y'all do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We'll be back next week with another My Thoughts Monday. I'll see you then.